the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, Carol Zerniel, our co-host on special assignment today, so we are carrying on solo. Carol, as many of you know, is executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, and she is at NCOA meetings and doing NCOA business, and we wish you well in that. And in the meantime, we carry on here on Caregiver SOS On Air. And we're delighted to be joined on the Caregiver SOS On Air hotline by Kevin Simowitz, uh, political director for Caring Across Generations up in Maine. We'll talk about that. He grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. I grew up at the other end of the state of Ohio in Cleveland, Ohio. He went to undergraduate school at the University of Virginia. And I asked him uh, <laughs> how we ended up in Maine. And, and first of all, Kevin, welcome to Caregiver SOS on Air. I, I thought your answer was perfect. Everything fit in the car, so heck, I'll drive there. And if it doesn't work out, it'll all fit again, and I'll drive back. I figured that there were politics in Maine, and there'd be politics someplace else if I needed to go someplace new. But it's been six years, and Maine's home now. What got you involved in politics? What was the attraction to uh, someone who grows up in the Queen City? Well, I really got into politics when I was going to college and was volunteering at the Salvation Army in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I was spending one Saturday afternoon out of every week at the Salvation Army serving food to people. And I was a freshman in college, and I thought this is is a good thing to be doing. I went to a high school that really emphasized community service, and I thought, okay, this is what I should keep doing. And I I had this one day when you look back and you realize, like, okay, this one conversation really shifted the direction of my life. But we finished lunch, and I was speaking with someone outside the shelter, but we were talking about um, what the rest of our days held. And he said, well, I've got to get going because I need to get to work. And I was not surprised to learn that someone who was experiencing homelessness was also working, but followed up and asked, you know, where do you work? And he said, well, I work at Observatory Hill Dining Hall. Do you know where that is? And, of of course, I knew where that was because O'Hill Dining Hall is on campus at the University of Virginia, and it's where, as a freshman, I ate nearly every single one of my meals. And I was really struck by I'm coming to this place once a week for three hours and serving lunch. And someone who lives here at the shelter is working at the place where I go to school and not making enough money to live in this town. And in that moment, I just realized, like, there is something really wrong with that. And I got involved in the living wage campaign at the University of Virginia, and I've been organizing and working around politics ever since. Interesting. Uh, And, of course, uh, a community organizer who made it big, President Barack Obama really changed the level of knowledge around community organizing 
community organizing and even people sort of hearing that phrase and thinking like, oh, that's, that's a job that people have and that's a thing that people do. Um, and that was about the same time that I was getting into organizing, which just really helped at family reunions give people a frame of reference for what this thing that I was now doing would be. In fact, I still laugh thinking about that former Alaska governor running for vice president who was belittling the fact that President Obama had been a community organizer. It was his knowledge and ability to organize that helped him win that election. If I remember correctly, Rob, I think that when the Obama campaign responded later on that day or later on that evening, maybe with an email responding to Governor Palin's comments about community organizers, I think that that was one of the two or three biggest email responses that they got in terms of donations from that time. I think picking on the idea of talking to people about what's happening in their neighborhoods and communities asking people what they want to see changed, and then working together to build that change. Yes. I think when you're picking on people who are doing that, I think it really struck a chord uh, at that particular moment in time. It was fascinating to see that. And so you threw all your uh, little belongings in your car, you motor up to Maine, and you went to work for an organization that, uh, for you, predated Caring Across Generations. That's right. When I came to Maine, I started to work with Maine People's Alliance. They're a statewide grassroots group working on a range of state and federal issues here. So came here to work with MPA and was there for about three years before I came to the Caring Across campaign. And what is Caring Across Generations? Caring Across Generations is a national campaign working to transform the way that we care in the country. So our campaign's vision is to build a new care infrastructure in the United States, one that works for people who are receiving care, older adults and people with disabilities, as well as people who are providing care, paid care workers and family caregivers. If you just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. We're talking with Kevin Simowitz, political director at Caring Across Generations, graduate of the University of Virginia, who now lives up in Maine, working with Caring Across Generations. And when you say changing the way we care and deliver care, how does that happen and what does that mean in, you know, nuts and bolts? The way that our care, that our campaign works, Ron, is we're working with partners in this year in 13 different states. So our theory of change is really built around working with people who are on the ground, building membership, talking to community members every day about what their care needs look like. And so when we think about a new care infrastructure, we're thinking about sort of one side of this is about access, about making sure that people are able to get the long-term care that they need where they want to receive it and to make sure that they're able to do that in a way that's affordable. So thinking about state policies in particular that help make sure people are able to afford high-quality home care. And then on the care worker side of the equation, thinking about a care infrastructure that, first and foremost, make sure that care workers' time and work is appropriately valued, so raising the reimbursement rates and the wages for people who provide care, and then also making sure that we're doing what we need to do to recruit and retain care workers, which means things like increasing access to job training programs and helping make sure that people who are doing this really important work day in and day out are able to do the work in a way that's sustainable for them to provide for their own families and work that can actually be a career that pays a fair wage. And you've got some examples of uh, ways in which you've done that across the country. 
That's right. I think especially in this current moment uh, where there's a lot happening at the federal level around taxes and around health care, I think what we're seeing across the country is that there are lots of groups and lots of states who are not waiting for the federal government to take action. And so there are places from coast to coast where community organizing groups and state legislators and advocates are really working together to think about how do we break new ground in this long-term care space. Now, we were talking about programs that uh, your organization, Caring Across Generations, uh, has been involved in that have generated positive results uh, for seniors and others. And, And bring us up to date on some of those activities. I think one of the most exciting examples is the work that happened in Hawaii. Really, it's been happening in Hawaii over the past two, almost three decades now. But just this year, the Hawaii legislature passed uh, what's called the Kapuna Caregivers Assistance Act. Um, Kapuna is the word in Hawaii for older adult or elder. And this is the first program of its kind in the entire country that would provide a benefit to family caregivers who are working 30 or more hours a week outside the house and also helping provide family care to a parent or a grandparent who needs help with two activities of daily living. So preparing food or getting dressed in the morning. And the idea behind the bill is to make sure that people who are in that situation, which of course many families are, and when you're in that situation facing those really difficult decisions of do I try to stay in the workforce and make sure that there's money coming in and that my retirement security is protected? Or do I leave to put more hours in as a family caregiver, which may be what mom or dad needs, but it's pretty tough on the rest of the family's finances, to try to help families who are in that position um, have it a little bit easier and provide a little bit of extra support. And the support comes in the form of a benefit about $70 a day. So, The idea is to help families pay for whatever needs they have that might close that gap. So hiring a home care worker who's able to come into the house for a couple hours a day, maybe help an older parent get dressed or prepare lunch so that someone's not leaving work and coming home and preparing a meal and then going back to the office or providing transportation to a doctor's appointment to be able to use this benefit to pay for transportation services and, again, not maybe have to rush home, take someone to a doctor's appointment, rush them back home, and then get back to the office. Things that are really meant to help support families in those situations who are doing such a good job of caring for one another and um, aren't asking for it. You know, in our campaign, we talked to, and I had the good fortune of getting to know a lot of people in Hawaii who've worked on this issue for a long time. And I didn't talk to anybody who said, we really need this to be super easy. And I didn't talk to anybody who said caregiving is just the worst thing. I talked to a lot of people who said, this is what we want to do for our parents and grandparents as they get older. And there should be a little bit of extra help. Like it just shouldn't be quite as hard as it is. And so the Kapuna Caregivers Act is a way to help provide that little bit of extra support to family caregivers in the state. And and sociologically, perhaps more inclination in a place like Hawaii uh, than in other states across this country uh, uh, to provide that kind of assistance. I think that's right. People are living a long time in Hawaii. Uh, I think some of that has to do with um, some of the attitudes in Hawaii around like 
just lifestyle. Uh, people tend to live longer there than in other states. I think it's the longest lifespan of any state in the country. Uh, and there's also this amazing attitude around like working together, uh, like even in the legislative process, that, that is a little bit unique from some other places. So the number of groups who came together to help make this bill a reality, um, like pretty long list. And many of the groups had worked together on things before. And for some of the groups, it was the first time being in partnership with one another. But to have that many groups committed to the issue and also working alongside some state legislators who they were really working without a net in some ways. They weren't able to look out at another state and say, well, there's eight programs just like this, and we just need to borrow their language and put Hawaii in where their state's name appears in the bill, and then we'll have this done. They were really creating something new and, and frankly, pretty visionary and bold. All right, stay with us. Kevin, we're going to come right Mm -hmm. back to you. We're talking to uh, Kevin Simowitz, who uh, talk about commitment, is sitting in a cold car up in Maine talking with us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. Ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that... Uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. We are so pleased you are with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, Carol Zerniel, our co-host on special assignment today. So it is just moi. We're talking on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline with Kevin Simowitz. He is political director of Caring Across Generations, an organization based up in Maine where they are trying to address the needs of individuals and organizations to assure greater access to care and to try and help caseworkers and seniors across this country. We've been talking about an example in Hawaii where they are now providing, through state legislation, a stipend to families who are stretched and strapped and providing care, 70 bucks a day, which can help somebody stay at work while they provide a little bit of extra care for the individual they're caring for at home. And Kevin, you made the point, and it's an excellent one, that this was really pioneering legislation which I'm assuming can be used as a model in other states. That, that's right. And the Hawaii legislation, I should say, the, the money moves from the state to the care agency itself. So one of the ways that we're helping try to create uh, increased accountability in that legislation is to move money to the care agencies who are already registered with the state. And building from Hawaii... So there are other states and other places where Caring Across is working. And our, our campaign is a national campaign. I happen to live in Maine, and um, the campaign works all across the U.S. And I think the other kind of exciting example, we moved from one extreme to the other, but 
here in Maine actually sort of inspired in part by the success of the legislation in Hawaii, our partners at Maine People's Alliance are leading a new citizens initiative around what they're calling home care for all to help make sure that every person in the state who needs long-term care is able to access home care. This is the first program of its kind in the country, again, borrowing a lot of lessons from the Aloha State and really coming up with a lot of new and creative ways to address the changing demographics in Maine. And one of the points you made about Hawaii, and it answers the uh, concern that uh, some would raise, well, how do you know the money is going to really help the people who need help, is by paying the social service agency directly. So if it's home health care that somebody needs, the state pays that agency, and the money doesn't go through the hands of the caregiver. That's right. In the Hawaii model, the money doesn't go to the families directly. It moves to the care agencies who are contracted with the state, uh, which we also hope is a way to be able to continually improve the training that's available to home care workers if they're interested. And we hear from many home care workers and our our sisters and brothers uh, and the labor movement have done so much good work here over the years and making sure that home care workers have access to training. But that's one of the other benefits of moving money from the state directly to the agencies is that there are ways to use that to help make sure that there are training opportunities and ultimately higher wages set at the state level for workers who are providing that care. And what is the program in Maine uh, that you're talking about? program in Maine, uh, right now it's proposed as a citizen's initiative, so our partners are in the process of gathering petition signatures to put this on the ballot to be voted on in 2018. Some people might have followed that Maine was the first state to expand Medicaid as a ballot initiative this year, in 2017, so this would be up to be voted on next November. And the program creates a universal home care trust fund that raises a dedicated source of revenue and elects a trust fund board who would be charged with administering this benefit to any family in the state where someone, either an older adult or a person with a disability, needed help with at least one activity of daily living. And so this benefit would exist on top of existing programs like Medicaid or Maine Care, as it's known in Maine, to help people be able to access the home care needs that they have without spending down all of their savings to qualify for Medicaid or having to go bankrupt to qualify to access the care that they need. Uh, And as you take a look at the national level, with pressure coming and threatened from Congress to reduce expenditures on Medicaid and Medicare and similar programs, Social Security as well. Does that threaten these kinds of programs in the states? It, I think all of the threats at the federal level um, certainly put a crunch on states and on community members as we think about, you know, states are thinking about their budgets and community members are thinking about how to be able to continue to access the care that they need. So, you know, the the threat is real. And I think that the actions that are being taken right now at the federal level have potentially dire consequences for people across the country. I think that examples like what's happening in Maine are spots where people are reacting and saying what's happening federally is really bad and pretty tragic, and that instead of hoping that 
Congress magically gets their act together in the next two weeks. We are going to take some action that makes sure that we're going to do as much as we can for the people in this state. And so I think that that's why we're seeing programs like what passed in Hawaii and what's being proposed here in Maine and in a number of other places, too, of states trying to take some action to protect against some of those really dire cuts at the federal level. As you take a look at uh, caring across generations, give us other examples of programs that you've been involved in. This year, we worked with partners in Ohio, actually, um, in, in the Cincinnati area, where our partners at the Amos Project were working on a senior services levy. This is a, a county-level levy that was needing to be renewed. It's renewed on a five-year cycle, and this is a levy that helps pay for all sorts all sorts of local senior services, including things that we're all pretty familiar with, like Meals on Wheels. And for me, one of the things that really stood out from the work that they did, they were knocking on doors, part of a door-to-door canvassing campaign. They were making phone calls to potential voters to let them know that, that this was going to be on the ballot, is the, the reception that they received when talking to people about this was really strong. And I think that for a long time, one of the things that we've seen is that issues around long-term care and elder care have been separate from political campaign work. They, of course, occasionally overlap and intersect, usually when there's a national conversation about Social Security. But more and more, I think we're seeing local and statewide groups help people connect the dots between long-term care needs and programs with what's happening politically. And so our partners at the Amos Project did a great job working at the county level with elected officials, but also really engaging the electorate around how important this levy was going to be and passed it by helped pass it by a really significant margin to make sure that seniors in the county are able to access the care that they've come to count on. Now, a levy would mean a local tax? That, that's right. Well, it's nice to know they approved it. Yeah, it's one of those things that um, once people hear, and I think this is an important lesson for us in this current moment, once people hear what the money is going towards, um, and in that case, going to local senior services, I think that people are able to see the value in increasing revenue and putting money towards a program like that. That's some of the conversation that we've started to have in Maine, too, is that the proposal would increase taxes on the highest income earners in the state. And on Election Day, our partners at Maine People's Alliance were in the process of gathering petition signatures at polling places across the state. So it's kind of this amazing day to have a statewide focus group, if you will, and talk to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And in talking to voters as they were leaving their polling locations about this initiative, telling them that it would propose a a new tax on the highest income earners in the state, and then telling people what that money was going to go towards, people were incredibly receptive to the idea of making sure that everyone paid their fair share and that that money that was raised went to something that everyone in the state was going to be able to benefit from. Well, we're going to talk more about the work you're involved in. Stay with us. We're talking with Kevin Simowitz. Try to warm up while we take a little break at our end as you uh, got worried about frostbite here, Kevin. Are you okay? <laughs> I'm great. Thank oh, good. You. He's hanging out in his car. Uh, somewhere deep in the state of Maine. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. 
What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner, Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Rockin' and rollin' here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And we're talking on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline with Kevin Simowitz, political director of Caring Across Generations. Carol Zerniel, our co-host on special assignment today. So it is me and Kevin, and he has done the ultimate uh, commitment to this program, hanging out in a car up in Maine in the middle of 30-degree weather because the reception is so much better than on his phone in his office building. And uh, you get the award for the day. Uh, You know, in fact, we should let the folks at the MacArthur uh, Awards uh, uh, Committee know what you're doing here to make this show work. I'm I'm sure that everyone tuned in to the, to the program uh, would be as excited to put the good word in as you are. Ron and I were joking earlier. Uh, the Caring Across Generations campaign has two co-directors. Sarita Gupta is the co-director of this campaign and directs Jobs with Justice, and I Jen Poo, who's the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, as well as co-directing Caring Across. And I Jen is a recipient of the MacArthur Award. Was on this podcast earlier and was joking with Ron that when you're listening to your old to your boss do a podcast um, that you're about to be on and talk about her receiving a MacArthur Genius Award it sets the bar relatively high <laughs> for what you're going to bring to the conversation. Ah, you're so right there, I, though. So I'm doing my best, and I appreciate the, the good wishes about the car, but, you know, it's a far cry from the first car I was driving around when I was organizing where those back windows didn't quite go all the way up, so that would have made this a much more difficult conversation. So I'm great here. All four windows roll all the way to the top. <laughs> we have all driven uh, those vehicles in our uh, younger days, right? Mm-hmm. Now, as you think about uh, the needs of uh, not only seniors but caregivers as well across this country, Caring across generations uh, is a great term uh, for what you all do because it is a generational challenge. You find in more and more families that folks are raising kids and caring for aging parents. That's right. You know, people talk about being in the sandwich generation, and Sarita Gupta, our co-director, frequently talks about people in that situation being in the panini generation, where you're being pressed from both sides. Exactly. And those, those, those caregiving responsibilities are only increasing. And I think, you know, as people are living longer and healthier lives, the, the opportunity that presents itself, especially at the state legislative level, to craft new and creative policies that help sort of keep the policies updated with the way that people's lives are changing is really exciting for us and for our partners in those states. Uh, and, and as you think about uh, the uh, demographics with 10,000 baby boomers a day turning 65, 
and the numbers now of people 65 and over exceeding those who are 18 and under. Uh, the challenge is very real as people live longer and uh, demand more and more needs and outlive, in many cases, their financial resources. What do we do as a society? Those are tough questions and decisions that have to be addressed. And when we think about it through a political lens, Ron, I think one of the things that we're seeing more and more, even in the past three or five years, is that elected officials are coming around to thinking about the changing demographics in the country as an opportunity rather than as a challenge. And I think that some of the state policies that you and I have had a chance to talk about are real examples of where state legislators are looking out and thinking, how does an older population offer an opportunity for us to create new caregiving jobs in the state and for us to make sure that people who are in that sandwich or panini generation are able to stay in the state and not have to leave looking for work or another state that offers different or better benefits for families in that situation. So in in some ways, I think it's by necessity, push, pushing the public policy conversation forward in ways that are really helpful as we come up with bold and creative ideas about how to meet people's care needs. Now, you've lived in uh, predominantly three different states, Ohio, Virginia, and Maine. How do they compare? In terms of caregiving policy? Yes, in terms of uh, ease of living, in terms of support for those in need, in terms of caregiving policies. I think that in a lot of ways, the the changes that have happened in Maine in the past, say, five years, maybe past six years, around you know, increases in reimbursement rates for care workers um, are like some of the biggest steps forward that I've gotten a chance to see people work on and making sure that home care workers at the state level are making a wage that they can afford to live on and provide for their for their family on. I think w- when I lived in Virginia and then when I lived in Maine, one of the big similarities was that neither one of those states had expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. And seeing the effects of legislatures in Virginia's case and a uh, governor in Maine's case failing to expand the Medicaid program and make sure that the largest number of people in the state had access to quality, affordable health care is a devastating decision. Devastating for people who need long-term care and in-home care. Medicaid is the largest provider of that in-home care, of course. So um, is a real challenge in states that don't expand Medicaid for people to be able to meet those long-term care needs. And then, of course, it's also challenging on the care worker side of the equation. So many care workers are working for minimum wage or maybe right above minimum wage that failing to expand Medicaid is, is often a failure to make sure that people who are caring for our parents and grandparents every day are able to afford the health care that they and their families need. And it's just one of the reasons why it was so exciting for Maine to take that step forward in this election cycle, but certainly looking at the federal conversation right now about health care, that's the thing that stands out probably most in the long-term care space is that when legislatures and governors have gotten into a space where they have um, put their own party politics in front of making sure people have health care, it's had really serious and really dire effects on caregiving across the states. Well, it's hard for me to understand, and while this show is not political and we don't get into political uh, issues, uh, this is a human issue. It's a question of providing uh, just a minimum baseline quality care for folks 
uh, and simply turning your back on them. And I don't know how a governor or a legislature can do that. That's that's right. And sorry if I if I wandered too far afield. No, but I think you're right. You know, and in talking about care, I think one of the things that's really exciting is how I've, I've had the chance to work on a number of different issues in the past decade or so. And one of the things that's exciting about care and that we're seeing in all of our field partner states is that the conversations that open up when we talk about care and caregiving with people are really different than the conversations that happen when we uh, might lead with other political issues. So our partners in Michigan at Michigan United and their sister organization, the Michigan People's Campaign, have a lot of experience talking with people door-to-door about long-term care and hearing their reflections back about people who might have had a really different reaction if they had started the conversation on, again, something that feels sort of more like a familiar or traditional door-to-door canvas script. When they started talking about what kind of care do you want to receive and want your family to receive, and where do you want to receive it, the conversations that they were having that they were having were longer and, and deeper than the conversations that they've had on other issues, and they were able to talk to people who I think might have shut the door on them if they led with something that felt a little bit more divisive. So even in those spaces, we're seeing the way that care draws out the best in us and in our conversations and also helps people get to a spot where they're working together for solutions um, and not quite as entrenched as they might be on some of the other issues. No, that's a good point. And, and Kevin, how do you then uh, take that uh, commonality and turn that into legislative action? What we're hearing, um, well, I should say it's, it's tricky, but it's doable. Um, and what we're hearing most from those conversations is that people want ideas and not just empathy with a problem. And I, I think that's been the spark for our campaign is that people don't, when we're talking to folks at their door on the phone about care issues, they know it's hard. They don't need somebody to say that that sounds really hard. They want to say that it's hard and then move to solution. And so a couple of the things that we've found that are most important, one is just about being bold. Um, of course, every family who's dealing with care and caregiving issues um, and try, trying to figure out how to pay for them or trying to navigate a really new and often convoluted area of medical and long-term care documents. Like, whatever people are dealing with in the care and caregiving space, um, it feels big. And people want big solutions to challenges that are big in their life. And so as we start to craft policies, one thing that we're seeing from Hawaii to Maine to Washington State, where people are really leading on a new long-term care program, is that the program's got to be big enough to meet the real need. And the other thing that we're seeing and really committed to at Caring Across is making sure that people who are most affected by caregiving issues are part of the process of coming up with the solution and then part of the implementation process and and the longer-term sustainability of whatever that policy looks like. So making sure that people who are receiving care and people who are providing care are shaping what the legislation or the ballot initiative looks like, but then also, whenever possible, a part of either the trust fund board, like in Maine, or part of an advisory committee, like in Hawaii, where the input is ongoing, and that the programs, as they get up and running, are able to be nimble and react to people's changing care needs as the programs sort of come into their own. Now, for folks who are listening who want to get involved, 
how do they do that? Uh, carrying across generations, I'm assuming you can use volunteers everywhere. Of course, yeah, we'd love to hear from people who want to get involved. The best way is probably to visit our website. It's caringacross.org. And if you're a social media person, all of the links to our various social media platforms are right there on the website. And what are the things folks here in Texas and elsewhere can do? One of the things that we're excited about people doing is as they learn about these programs happening in other places to be able to reach out to elected officials and to other community members wherever you live and talk about if something like that or something that sounds like it and maybe goes in some new directions would work in your state or in your town. The whole idea of what we're trying to build are things that work in a place and that hopefully spark some ideas that uh, with a few creative tweaks can work in another place too. You know, using the Hawaii model legislation, for example, would certainly uh, be useful here in Texas. Yeah, and I, I think that the the biggest hurdle for us to get over is just getting the word out more and more about what people are doing and what we're learning as we start these programs and implement them. So I actually think programs like this and people who are tuned in and listening, um, the more people that hear and share the experience and the success in states like Hawaii, I think the closer we are to being able to have more and more places take that model and run with it. So what's next for Kevin Simowitz? Well, I'm going to see if I've still got a pair of gloves in the car and put those on <laughs> after our conversation. Uh, but but I'm really excited about the work that's happening here in Maine. And um, I'm excited about the work that's happening all across the country, of course. But living here in Maine and being physically closer to the campaign here, uh, I think, you know, I, I'll just share briefly. I had the opportunity to talk to people at the polls on Election Day and ask them to sign the petition to help put this on the ballot for 2018. Had so many conversations throughout the day. And and I had two different people as they were signing um, start to cry as they told me about their wow. family members who needed care and not been able to afford it. And one person was talking to me about, you know, how challenging it was when her father moved into a nursing home and sort of what that meant to their family. Sure. I was just really struck by, you know, so many families are in these situations and and this this story that, like, right now has an ending that for a lot of families is really difficult. Um, and we get a chance with this ballot initiative to come up with a new ending to that story for so many Maine families. So really excited to be working alongside our partners at Maine People's Alliance to see what we can do in the coming year. Well, I appreciate your time, Kevin. Caringacross.org. You can get more information. And, and thank you for joining us. Ron, thanks so much for inviting me on. I appreciate okay. it. You take care. Bye-bye. Kevin Simowitz is uh, political director, Caring Across Generations. This is Caregiver SOS on Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Up next, we take Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, dealing with issues that are of great interest to everybody. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well... I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. 
nurse practitioner Cora Juke. I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. We are rocking along right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. Time now for Take 10, which follows each and every one of our Caregiver SOS On Air programs when nationally known psychotherapist Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us, an expert on caregiving and addictions as well, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. And Carol, you got a pretty good topic here that spins off something we were talking about earlier with our guest here on Caregiver SOS On Air. What in the world do you do and how do you handle it when... Hope and joy comes in the middle of all the stuff that goes with caregiving. Right. So caregiving, you know, for, particularly if you're in a in a difficult situation, someone with cancer, someone with Alzheimer's, late stage Alzheimer's, um, you know, pick an illness, ALS, multiple sclerosis, somebody that's really it's just a very physically or mentally demanding caregiving situation. Um, and we were talking to Lorna about. Uh, how, you know, she was trying to find peace, hope, and joy in the middle of all this blackness and darkness. So does that even make sense, Jamie? You know, it it actually does. Um, interesting enough, we always come at this healthy caregiver or non-healthy caregiver um, from an assumptive place. So we, we usually see caregivers being surprised by caregiving, like a two-by-four, you know, hitting them at the time when they least suspect it. And, and also, disproportionately, people have not taken care of their mind, their body, and their soul, um, their spirit, if you will, um, once they become a caregiver. So we kind of take it, I mean, I say we, the collective caregiver organizations around the country, that people aren't as healthy as we'd like them to be as they enter this extraordinarily difficult time that most of them tend to neglect themselves. But there are those who have actually done what they were supposed to do, that actually did see a therapist, that has some balance in their life, that is receptive to find good uh, or the, the glass half full instead of half empty. And, and actually, I believe that that's the person you're talking about in this segment. So, you know, it seems very yin and yang, uh, hope and joy, illness, imminent death. You know, is there some truth to the... You know, uh, to you can't appreciate the good unless you have the bad. I mean, you, do you have to have both? Is it? You know, um, I'm just trying to figure out. You know, how do people get to a place when they're they're only surrounded with bad that they can lift themselves up and see the good? Well, that is uh, that's an interesting thing. It's um, disease and sometimes um, you know extraordinarily challenging times like being a caregiver, um, confusion, lack of concentration in your life. Not you know not being healthy, these are all sort of lily pads, if you will, if you can look at it like that, as to uh, brighter times ahead, that the tunnel actually is not going to remain a tunnel, that things will get light. I mean, I've had a challenging time this year, even with myself and, and, and a you know, medical challenge, and, and it does get pretty bleak. Uh, and, and as I was sitting with my therapist and speaking to my therapist, you know, he said, Jamie, there you would never be able to appreciate the good times until you really work as hard as you're working to emerge from the difficult times. So the yin-yang theory that you're mentioning, Carol, is uh, is pretty valid here. Do I understand you correctly? you got to have bad times to have good times? Well, to appreciate good times, certainly you, you need to weather the bad times. And uh, huh. uh, when bad times paralyze you and, and you cannot move and cognitively you're kind of circling the drain and looking at life and in very negative terms, um, it's very difficult, Ron, to get to 
appreciate any good times. But yeah, will you wave HIPAA? That, Can you wave your HIPAA and let us get your therapist on for a show? Oh, I would love to, actually. <laughs> He's been like a, a part of my family. I would have absolutely no problem him. Well, I, I may have some problems. I'll have to <laughs> definitely firewall some stuff. But but uh, Dr. Dominic Callahan would be a, a wonderful guest That's on this cool. show. Because well, uh, he has gone, gone through a lot. Well, you know, what I heard um, in this particular guest talking about was that you know, she recognized, she looked around and she said, we are in dark times. Now let's create good memories, you know, because when we get, when I get to the end of this, when we, when we get to the end of this, I want to make sure you, you, the person I love and am caring for, that you lived all you could despite the illness. And that when I look back, I don't just see illness in my rearview mirror. He had colon cancer and really a, not a lot of time left to live. So, right. so, so, you know, so it's, I guess the question is, um, you know, can we intentionally, can we create um, a a clearer space to be happy, to live fully, um, even though we are doing that, you know, with illness and death as our companion? We are, and there's coping strategies. I'm not taking anything away from your guest at all, because I think your guest is extremely powerful to see life like that. But I do believe that if you're given a, a... a diagnosis where there is absolutely, you know, unfortunately, no, no, no answer for it. That's um, that's going to death is imminent. Um, there is a little bit more of an opportunity of acceptance, of of awareness, of being able to let go, to know that you're powerless over your loved one's illness, and that this is huh. going to be. Let's make the best of the situation. I do think this is very circumstantial sort of type of things that not all caregivers have that in fact many caregivers live in the nebulous world as i don't know what's going to happen you know and so they do have a different look at this now hold that thought we're going to come right back to you if you just joined us you're listening to take 10 on caregiver sos on air i'm ron Aaron, along with dr jamie heisman and carol zerniel and she did say something jamie that was fascinating when they got the diagnosis the doctor said it's colon cancer Maybe you got five years, maybe. He was incredibly relieved because he thought he had it and thought maybe he had three months. She was devastated. Yes. Can Interesting. See that? I, I just had a friend of mine pass in the same way. He just went and found out he had stage four. Now, he was in a program of recovery. He's a 30-year recovering alcoholic who really believed in the program and that he had to let go and that life is unmanageable and he had to you know spiritually enter some other world of 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 hope and he was much more the inspiration for his wife who took it devastatingly uh, difficult but for those people for those caregivers i mean there are real coping strategies of of that they must still enter to get to where your guest is so not all people kind of enter this world like like your guest but that doesn't mean it's not attainable i mean if they they follow simple steps. If they take fam, friends and families up on offers to help, if they get engaged socially with their own life, if they you know, basically start small in terms of taking care of their lives and, and, and go to doctors and, and exercise, if you will, at home. And, 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 and if they find some passion of something they also love that they can have as a parallel experience to it, um, things like that, taking a walk with your loved one and stuff. Think there's strategies to get to where your guest is at. I do believe your guest, however, was you know quite healthy prior to, and and I, I I do think that also the inspiration of her loved one and his acceptance 
um, really gave her a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, you know, I thought um, it was interesting because she was, uh, for her, she was worried, what's life going to be like without him? And what he was worried with is, how is she going to, you know, what's her life going to be like without me? So they were both, you know, really, she was was trying to make sure he didn't suffer at all and he didn't see her worry, but they were really both worried about the same thing, which is why she was talking about being together, but being alone, because obviously he wasn't going to be there in that future. Um, But, you know, just that the idea, though, of, of, of planning, of deciding, you know, just accepting reality. I think that was it. I mean, he accepted the diagnosis, and he was happy he had more time, um, and she came to accept it and said, all right, the reality is we're going to plan in three-month increments. So what fun, good thing are we going to do this three months? You know, what can we do in the next three months that is something you want to do that we want to do together or as a family? They did a series of bucket lists, but didn't call it a bucket list. No bucket list, but three-month increments. So, you know, I really like that strategy. I do, too. I I think that that's, you know, sometimes when we get older and we live with somebody a long time, we think it's love and there's hostile dependencies and people are angry and, I think that they just both saw this particular thing um, out of their narcissistic heads. In fact, he got out of his head thinking about her. She got out of her head thinking about him. And at some point in time, they met in the middle, middle to manage their levels of stress. And um, and they did this together, and they were realistic. And, and, and it feels to me that, hmm. they, you know, water found its level with, with them. And, and I think that if you do let go and if you can take care of yourself, um, I think this happens and can happen with many couples. That's pretty cool. And seeing a therapist wouldn't hurt. No, 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 no. I think as you as you're going down this road with your loved one, it's a wonderful path. But I do think that you always need a place where you can absolutely become confidentially sort of disclosive about mm-hmm. what it's really bringing up in do with you. So you don't have to belabor it with your loved one. Um, so you can find a place where you can give yourself credit and not have to live this world of guilt. So you can actually say what is authentically on your mind about the process, clear it out, leave it in a place with the person you trust, and then come out again and resume this this, this reciprocal sort Perfect. of way of acceptance. Flat out of time. Thank you, Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for joining us on Take 10 and Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 a.m. The Answer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.